This is The Guardian. Today, why a former Uber executive came forward with a huge leak from the company, in his own words. It's about nine in the morning, on a clear spring day in May. I'm in the French countryside, driving through small towns and past vineyards, discovering that breakfast radio really sucks, whatever language it's in. I've got a set of instructions for an address where I've got to meet someone. It's in a disappearing message, just to make sure the location stays secret. Which sounds like overkill, but the person I'm going to meet is trying to lay low. He's a whistleblower, a former executive from one of the largest tech companies in the world. Yesterday, we told you about an unprecedented leak of confidential files, revealing how Uber broke laws, exploited violence against drivers, and secretly lobbied governments as it was aggressively growing around the world. The reason we know any of this is because earlier this year, someone made contact with The Guardian a guy who had sat with governments in Europe, Russia, Africa, and the Middle East, persuading them to rewrite their laws in Uber's favor. And now, he wanted to talk about it. He had documents, tens of thousands of emails, internal memos, text messages from his time at the company. And he felt like the public needed to see them. Hello. How's it going? This is what former senior executive Mark McGann saw inside Uber and why he's coming forward now to tell the world about it. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, The Uber Files Part 2, The Whistleblower. Do you remember the first time you used an Uber? I do. It was before advising the company, it was before joining the company. What did you think of it? I thought it was cool. You know, back in the days, the drivers were extremely enthusiastic. It really felt like you had your own private driver. It was a very enjoyable experience. Mark McGann is an insider. He's moved for decades in the highest circles of business and government. He's been a regular at Davos. If you focus just on the, the, the quarterly numbers. The annual gathering of the world's richest and most powerful people. And focusing on purpose, people, and then profit. He's met Tony Blair and Emmanuel Macron. On his bookshelf, there's a picture of him with the former Israeli president, Shimon Peres. He is, or was until recently, a lobbyist, helping to shape laws in favour of some of the world's biggest tech firms and getting paid really well for it. And meeting Mark, I can see why he was good at his job. He's really charming. He looks right at you. He asks questions, remembers what you tell him and brings it up later. He told me he had this particular quality that he discovered early on in his career. No matter who he was meeting, presidents, prime ministers, CEOs, he said he just didn't get nervous. He could see them as people, and Mark liked people. Look, this is how I was brought up, that prime minister or waiter, waitress in a restaurant, they're the same people. So I certainly wasn't nervous, but it's a privilege to be able to sit down and small meetings, in some cases one-on-one -on -one meetings with prime ministers. You know. 
In the summer of 2014, Mark was poached by what was then the hottest tech company in the world, the ride-sharing company Uber. It involved a pay cut. One of his earlier jobs had paid $750,000 a year. But he got to be a part of and got shares in a company that promised to change the world. Uh, our mission, we like to say, is uh, transportation as reliable as running water everywhere for everyone. How did the company talk about the, the vision? I mean, how did they frame th this mission that they were on? For most of us, it was push a button, get a ride. Just get around your cities faster, easier, cheaper. And we were thought that we were providing uh, a new service for which there was definitely high demand based on the amazing telecommunications technology that I'd been working on and representing for decades previous to that. It matters because in today's world, well, around the world, there are over a billion cars out there. A billion cars that are 96% unutilized. It all made a lot of sense in my mind that you would harness technology in this way to improve lives, to improve cities. So how quickly did you begin to realize that you were somewhere different, that the previous jobs you had 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 not necessarily prepared you for what you were now embarking on? I was hired because of my experience. I'd had a pretty decent reputation for running public policy teams and government relations teams up to that point. So I believed that I was going to be empowered to try and bring my experience and knowledge to Uber to improve the relationship between Uber and government. After a couple of days, I realized that it was like shouting in the wind. Anything I said was shouted down by the CEO, and he had a tendency definitely to view government as an entity that just needed to get out of the way. That CEO was Travis Kalanick. In his mid-30s and brash, he pioneered Uber's strategy to aggressively enter new markets, get a foothold, and only then, if necessary, try to change the law to make what Uber was doing legal. Tell me about that first meeting with Travis Kalanick that you had. Well, the first meeting was actually a, a virtual meeting. It was a, I remember I was... Uh, we were actually in Brussels and we were having one of many late night video calls with the team in San Francisco. And this was the fall of 2014. And uh, I'd say, look, we, we need to see all these governments. We need to engage. We need to sit down with all these decision makers and explain our, our service and, you know, try and get people to understand that we are well intentioned. And, you know, I, for the past couple of years, had been going to Davos every year. And I, I suggested that we sort of go to Davos because during a three or four day period, you have the possibility to meet with the relevant transport ministers, the relevant civil servants from many countries around the world. And he just went berserk. He shouted down. He said, I don't need Davos. Davos needs me. That's a waste of time. I'm not going to waste my time, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm thinking, wow, OK, um, I probably should just, you know, write a memo or something because clearly you're not allowed to speak freely. I don't need Davos. Davos needs me. That's what he said. What did you think when he said that? I thought that was pretty arrogant and pretty obnoxious. And I had at that stage, at the age of 44, sufficient experience to realize that that is not how you lead people. That is not how you run a company. What kind of company culture is, is kind of created by a person like that? I mean, he commanded a lot of devotion by people because they saw him as, and he was, a pretty brilliant, driven innovator who wouldn't take no for an answer. But nobody has the entitlement to just start a company and don't worry about, you know, human resources, don't worry about taking care of employees, just 
push your employees into the field. You know, his mantra was it is better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. So he was basically instructing 20-somethings to go into cities, despite Uber being against the rules, to just bring drivers onto the platform, just launch, just operate, and, you know, we got your back and we're going to be successful. Get into a market, establish a foothold, and laws, regulation, that all comes later? Yeah, we will not take no for an answer. Mark says he realised pretty quickly that this might not be the job for him. He says he tried to resign, but was convinced to stay. He didn't like the way Travis Kalanick operated, but as he puts it, when it came to Uber's stated mission, to transform the way people got around, he had drunk the Kool-Aid. He was all in. So we had very strong arguments based on improving the economy of a city, improving the life of a city and improving the experience of a city for those who live there and those who, who were visiting. We had a very, I think, a very strong rationale for why Uber should be led into a city in terms of serving transportation deserts that exist in many, especially poor neighborhoods, in complementing uh, the public transport system. But Uber wasn't just trying to convince governments to change the law. In many countries, it was also breaking it, giving people without the right licences a platform to carry passengers and destroying a business that had its problems but was following the law, the taxi industry. Where things broke down quite considerably is when we were told, OK, that's very interesting, let's talk about that, but you're actually operating an illegal product in my city. In Paris, Marseille and Lyon and other cities, airport entrances were blocked and expressways were shut down by burning tires. You know, I'm having all sorts of demonstrations by taxi drivers, they're blocking the streets. You need to stop what you're doing if you won't have any hope of having a dialogue or coming into our country or into our city. And that's something that we didn't want to do. So what would you tell them when they said to you, listen, we can talk about this, but you've got to follow the law? That's when we would kind of weaponize our customers and our drivers and say, well, you know, your voters think differently, Mr. Mayor. Look at all these writer petitions, you know, 15, 20,000, 200,000 people signing a petition to Boris Johnson to tell him his rules for London were anti-competitive and anti-consumer. And then when taxi drivers would, you know, go out in the streets and demonstrate and block cities, a hunk of metal, a car, is a great way to, uh, to make your voice heard. Then we would encourage and work hard and mobilize Uber drivers to do the same. So we were saying to Uber drivers, why don't we put you guys out in the street so you can defend your, your income and defend your opportunity to earn a living? Like, put you, you guys out in the street as in, like, get out there and start protesting? Absolutely. You know, you need to stand up for your, your own interests. I think that we put people in harm's way, and I think that was wrong, and I am absolutely sorry for having played a part in that. The consequences of Uber's hardball approach to growing the business were felt most by the people who Uber claimed didn't even really work for the company. The ones they called driver partners, or just supply. The people actually driving the customers around. In the countries where Mark oversaw lobbying, 
that blowback was especially intense. In Paris and Amsterdam and Johannesburg and Germany and Brussels, you know, Barcelona, you name it, drivers were getting harassed by taxi drivers who understandably feared for their own livelihoods. Uber drivers were not just being harassed, but were being pulled out of cars at train stations, were being beaten up in South Africa, in Mexico, in Brazil. Uber drivers lost their lives. What kind of impact did those deaths have in the office? You could hear a pin drop. People were just appalled. One of the messages that we found from Travis in this data was from France in response to pretty widespread protests by the taxi industry. And he suggested putting drivers out into the streets to protest. And you actually warned him that some of these taxi protests were being infiltrated by the far right, that that might be dangerous, it might lead to violence. And Kalanick replied, I think it's worth it. Violence guarantees success. What did that mean? I think it meant exactly what it said, that the only way to stay relevant, to keep the pressure up on the French government, was to match like for like. Taxi drivers go out and block the streets and burn cars and protest. Uber drivers should do the same. That was a lot to ask of Uber drivers. And some were already beginning to question why they weren't getting stuff like sick pay or pensions or insurance. The money back then was great, but if you looked closely, the figures didn't add up. Drivers were earning a lot more, and customers were paying much less than would be sustainable in the long term. Someone would eventually have to lose out. But Uber would tell these drivers they were part of a revolution. They were being empowered to become their own bosses, winning freedom over the way they worked. Mark was one of the people making that argument. This is him in October 2015. All drivers are self-employed. They drive their own cars. They use the app to connect themselves with consumers who need a ride. They choose their hours of work. Not a dispatcher, not a controller, not some boss. They choose their own hours and how flexible the work is. He has a different view of it now. Uber was saying basically what people wanted to hear, telling investors they would make massive profits in a very short period of time, telling employees that they were going to get great stock compensation and there would be an IPO and everybody would be very rich, Uh, telling customers that they would be able to just push a button, get a ride in under a minute or two for a very cheap price, you know, telling drivers that they could make a really good living. We were telling people that they could make thousands, in some cases tens of thousands. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. At the time, we were massively subsidizing the rides all across the world, giving incentives to drivers so that they had a decent uh, income. But we were always going to be increasing the commission. We were always going to be removing those incentives so that what we call driver economics, you know, I think uh, American politicians would call it very fuzzy math. How well known was it that the plan was to eventually increase Uber's commissions on these rides? Uh, Among management, we just knew on different... Uber services, what you wanted to do was basically buy your way into the market, acquire market share with billions of dollars of investor money. And once you got a foothold, though we didn't say this publicly, we'd get into these markets, we'd slam the door behind us, we would own that market. And once you're in the market, you increase the commission, you take away the driver incentives. In many cases, you increase the fares for 
consumers. You had to. Otherwise, you don't have to be an economist to understand that there was no path to profitability unless you completely changed your practices uh, completely different to the discourse that you had been saying publicly. And these drivers who were so excited to be part of Uber, who would tell you how happy they were to be working for this company, did they know that? No, they didn't know that. We were giving them free iPhones. We were giving them the opportunity to be part of an amazing project, the opportunity to, to make a living. We were giving them all sorts of gifts and you know, so-called swag. And, and they really felt they weren't employees, but they really felt that they were part of the team. They didn't know that we were going to completely pull the rug from under them. Mark says he didn't really know that either, but that he probably should have. The work was just so fast-paced. He was pulling 20-hour days, sometimes working seven days a week, constantly on video calls, flying overnight to meetings, dinners, briefings, media appearances. It was unrelenting and stressful, and he says he didn't really have the opportunity to stop and reflect. But you were there too when that stuff was happening. Yes, I was. So how did you justify it? I just kept trying to do my job, to build my team, to help my team, and most of the time we just tried to get through the day. There was a crisis every day. When your nose is up at the coalface and you're just trying to do your job and you're not listened to and you don't have a voice internally and anything you say that goes against the instructions, the directions that are coming to San Francisco, that's perceived as disloyal and going against the mission. So at some point you realize, okay, this is not sustainable. I need to get out of here. Again, Mark says he tried to resign but ended up sticking around. He would sometimes speak up about the things he thought were wrong, but for the most part, he just did his job. Even as police started raiding Uber's offices, and it became clear, the company wasn't just operating in a legal grey area. In some places, it was actively trying to evade the police. Tell me about the kill switch. It sounds quite morbid, doesn't it? So, you know, I'd never seen a policeman or woman in the office in any of my previous uh, roles. Uh, but getting raided by the police, usually early in the morning, so-called dawn raids, was becoming a, a weekly and sometimes daily occurrence. Were you in the office for any of those dawn raids? I was in the office for some of them in Paris, in Amsterdam, in Brussels. What are they like? How do they go down? Well, I mean, when you see the sirens coming outside the office, you realize that this is not necessarily a friendly visit from local law enforcement. In the meantime, the French interior minister has ordered police to put a stop to Uber Pop by arresting drivers. They weren't going after Uber. I mean, there was some litigation against Uber, but we were pumping investor money into outside law firms to defend ourselves and protect ourselves. So the authorities in France and the Netherlands and Belgium, places like that, figured that if they could just find out who the people that were driving for Uber were, where they lived, what they did, they could sue those individuals. La préfecture de police annonce 253 arrestations de conducteurs de taxis illégaux depuis le 1er janvier 2015. La plupart de ces chauffeurs utilisaient l'application Uberpop. So we realized we had to choke off access to all driver records and driver data. Uh, so we developed a, a routine whereby senior executives would message a person in Denmark where the Uber data was stored and, you know, 
kill access, cut off access, block access, which meant that when the police came into the office and instructed the employees to open their computers or their laptops, they would be faced with a blank screen and uh, a puzzled, sometimes dramatic puzzlement on the behalf of employees that oh, we don't have access to our data anymore. Sorry. I'm like, I'm stunned at this idea that you developed this system to shut off access to data when, you know, you heard the police sirens approaching the office. It sounds like obstructing justice. Yes, except remember that we believe that these were unjust laws or bad laws. So I think we believe that our duty was to protect the drivers, to protect their identities. So I guess we kind of felt it was the lesser evil. But you needed to protect their identities because of the position that Uber had put them in. Yes. The government cracked down last year, but the company's lawyers are fighting that, and it is paying freelancers fines. Italian, German, Dutch and Spanish courts have banned the service. Throughout this time, Uber was still growing incredibly quickly, on its way to operating in 10,000 cities. Each step of the way, fighting taxi unions, regulators, its competitors. And Mark was one of the most public faces of this battle. Pour l'instant, du moins, Marc Magan, bonjour. bonjour. Merci d'être avec nous. Vous êtes responsable euh, d'Uber. We've been for five years. We're now in 60 countries and about 330 cities worldwide. Uh, we're doing more than one million trips worldwide. And eventually, the blowback that had been felt by Uber drivers for years started to reach Mark. And it would sow the seeds for the decision he's making now. Mark, during your time at Uber, you ended up becoming the face of the company in many parts of the world. And you ended up feeling, personally, the consequences of the company's take-no-prisoners approach. What was happening to you? Well, at the time, Uber was becoming more and more controversial. And the resistance from the taxi industry was becoming louder uh, and, in some cases, more violent. Although Travis was the person on all the front pages, you know, he was in his office in 1400 Market Street in San Francisco. I had been asked to do lots of media and stuff to try and push the company's messages. You know, I became recognizable. And I remember the first time when the operations team in one of the cities sent me uh, an email with pictures of myself and my friends and my friend's children from what I had been doing that day. Oh my God. We were shopping, we'd gone for lunch, and they were posting these pictures on taxi driver Facebook groups and saying where I had been, where I lived. And that was upsetting. Must have been terrifying. Uh, to be honest, Michael, I was more angry than scared. And it sort of snowballed from there on. Yeah, I mean, it did. Like, what happened at Midi Station in Brussels in April 2015? So I was getting off a Eurostar to go home for the weekend and I was approached by a group of very angry men shouting at me. They recognized you? They recognized me, insulting me, telling me that they knew where I lived, that the game's up, uh, and that they were going to come after me. And it, they came up to me and started pushing me and I was shaking. I don't know if I was shaking out of fear, out of anger, probably both. Uh, and that started to become a thing at airports, train stations in Paris, in, in uh, 
Brussels, uh, other cities. The company's reaction wasn't to rethink, you know, what we were doing. They said, okay, you need to have bodyguards. So for the my remaining time at Uber, almost a year, I had bodyguards seven days a week anytime I left my home. By the summer of 2016, Mark was out. He'd finally managed to quit. But the attacks against him, the consequences of the way Uber operated, didn't end. On l'a bloqué. On était juste pour Europe. On l'a bloqué. On était juste trois. Puis On the 19th of September 2017, at that same station in Brussels, Mark was recognised again. I, I was still getting abuse on the street, in particular in, in Belgium where I lived. And it started to die down a bit, but it still happened. Again, I had arrived at the train station. Uh, again, I was getting off a of Eurostar. I managed to text my uh, Uber driver, find out where he was. You know, it's really hard for Uber drivers. They're not allowed to approach airports or approach train stations. So I was walking out and I was recognized. And again, my name was shouted and insults and I ignored them. I walked faster and faster as they came after me. Uh, I got to the car. I tried to throw my bag in the trunk of the car and they grabbed me and tried to prevent me getting into the car. I managed to get into the car. I shouted at the driver to lock the car. The poor man, he was trembling and he started to cry. He was so scared. And I was less scared for myself. I was super angry for him that six years, five years after Uber had started in Belgium, and Uber was still putting drivers in this situation in order to learn, earn a living. The stress, the harassment, the threats, the violence. How scared did you get? Like, what did you fear might happen? Well, when you have a 10 or 11 very angry men rocking the car, banging on the window for the driver to get out, banging on the window for me to get out, saying, we know where you live. Bad things happen very, very quickly. And people don't intend to maybe go further, but but accidents happen. I call the police. Police said, hey, I will send a car. I tweeted that I was sequestered in a car and, you know, some good people in, in Brussels retweeted and, and all of a sudden the police came. Maybe it was a coincidence, maybe. I don't know. And at this point, I guess... You no longer had bodyguards? No. So you were on your own, facing this threat that clearly had not been extinguished, was still present. Yeah, I guess that's not something that was of particular concern to Uber. Five years on, you find yourself in a very different position. You're now coming forward as a whistleblower. Somebody who wants to reveal what was happening inside Uber at the time you were there. And I want to understand how you got to this point. The first time you thought the public needs to know some of these things you were a part of, that you learned about while you were at Uber. Look, there's no one single event. You know, 2018, 2019, I started to have more time to think and and gain more perspective. And I felt that by this stage, the Uber promise, the dream, the mission had soured considerably. And I struggled with it because I had played my part. You know, I was no passive bystander in trying to persuade the public, persuade governments, persuade drivers that Uber was a force for good. Mark still used Uber and he found himself having lots of conversations with drivers, hearing how unsatisfied they were, how some were struggling to get by. And he started thinking about his own role in creating those kinds of conditions. 
and what his responsibility was now. I felt that I had been involved in selling some sort of pipe dream, advocating false hope. And I was angry with the company. I was angry with myself. This was wrong, and things didn't have to be this way. That surely it's possible to have a great product, an amazing service like Uber, without treating drivers in in this disgraceful way. Can I tell you what I don't understand about this, right? Even while you were at Uber, you had a pretty good idea of what you called the driver economics, that this was not the deal that it was being made out to be to the drivers. Drivers say they have seen a huge drop in their wages, and that's why they're taking this protest to Uber's offices in South London. So what was it about those later conversations with drivers that you were having that made such an impression on you? It dawned on me that things were not going to change. Uber has lost an appeal against a ruling that its drivers should be treated as workers. When I saw that in the UK that Uber was still doing whatever it takes, in this case on fighting the claims of drivers, on fighting their desire to be reclassified as workers, and Uber decided that the right thing to do was to channel tens of millions of dollars into fighting against those reforms. Now, Uber has said this will take one of two avenues from now. This will either go to the Court of Appeal or it will go direct to the Supreme Court. I realise that unless you change the culture, nothing's going to change. Coming up, Mark talks about why he decided to blow the whistle. Early this year, Mark McGann contacted journalists at The Guardian. He told them he wanted to meet in Geneva. Paul Lewis, Harry Davies, Simon Goodley and Lisa O'Carroll went out there to meet him. We're not, we don't need to get everything. It would be good to get a sense of the scope. I think it's really helpful. He opened two suitcases, pulled out laptops, hard drives, iPhones, stacks of paper. Some mundane, some of relevance, some shockers, uh, screenshots, um, SMS. He told them it would take at least a few days to explain everything he knew. I know for a fact that we did a lot of very egregious things. It's rare for someone to come forward the way Mark has. It takes a lot of courage. There's no perfect whistleblower, but Mark's a complicated figure. He was in on a lot of the conduct he's now exposing. And his relationship with Uber, in the years since he left, hasn't been great. Several years after you left Uber, you were diagnosed with PTSD. Yes. Do you think your experiences at Uber the pace of work, the things you were forced to do, the violence that you experienced contributed to that diagnosis? Look, I mean, you bring this up. Yeah, I had a very tough time at Uber. Sure, it contributed to a lot of stress and I was diagnosed with, some people call it a disorder. Uh, For me, it's an injury. These are scars that I have from my time at Uber. But what's most important here is that The purpose of what I'm doing is to try and shine a light on how drivers are being treated and to tell them that they're not alone in this fight. People listening to this, people who admire the step you're taking, might nonetheless be asking, why did it take so long 
they might say, why wasn't it immediately after you left Uber that you came forward with this? Look, I haven't soured on the service, on the technology, and on the vast majority of people who work at Uber. I've soured with regards to Uber's failure to live up to its responsibility. I was very loyal to the company. I'm, uh, that's usually an asset. Sometimes I guess it's a flaw. And I felt that, if I'm honest, it, it wasn't my problem. It wasn't my responsibility that I was gone from the company. Uh, you know, I hadn't been listened to. Uh, I did what I did and hoped I created some value in some way. But I kind of was getting on with my life. And it's, I kind of realized that I couldn't move on because I was involved. I was part of the team at the time. So that's what I'm doing. Do you hope that having done this, you will be able to move on from this period of your life, from this thing that you say you were in some way responsible for helping to build? Is an element of this about atoning I mean, sitting here today, speaking into a microphone, it's difficult for me to get my head around the concept of atonement. However, when I'm sitting in the back of an Uber and I'm talking to the driver, because (laughs) poor guys, I, I always quiz them and talk to them. When I'm talking to them, that's when I feel still a sense of connection with them, that we, at some point, were all on the same team. And then I moved on. I did well. And they're still sort of there stuck on this platform being dictated to by a set of algorithms. So if there's atonement to be felt, it's when I'm in the back of an Uber. And I I suppose, yes, that's part of it. You had a legal dispute with Uber and personal grievances against the company. How do you respond to the suggestion that you're coming forward, you're doing what you're doing out of a sense of vengeance rather than the public interest? You know, I settled a dispute with Uber that had been going on for way too long, but this is not out of vengeance. You know, if I wanted to use whatever data I have or had to try and exact vengeance on Uber, I wouldn't have waited all this time. Mark McGann, thank you so much. Thank you. No, it's just... uh, The prospect of leaving this all in the past. Sorry, God. Are they tears of of joy or or, or sadness at that prospect? Uh, To be honest, they're tears of kind of exhaustion. I'm so done with this topic and this company and these people. That was Mark McGann, a former Uber lobbyist turned whistleblower. You can read more about his story at theguardian.com. 
We put the issues raised in today's episode to Uber and Travis Kalanick. Uber said that there had been, quote, no shortage of reporting on Uber's mistakes prior to 2017, and that it had transformed itself into a new company that is now one of the largest platforms for work in the world and an integral part of everyday life for over 100 million people. It said it had moved from an era of confrontation to one of collaboration, demonstrating a willingness to come to the table and find common ground with former opponents. It also said that driver earnings in the US, UK, France, Spain and Italy are at or near all-time highs. Uber said that in the UK it was the only platform that treated drivers as workers with a guaranteed national living wage, holiday pay and pension, and that it has repeatedly argued that there is a real economic and social value to flexible and independent work arrangements, with which it said drivers agree choosing flexible work over other available work options, and choosing to preserve their independent contractor status and crucially determine how and when they work, which would be impossible in an employment model. In a statement, a spokesperson for Travis Kalanick said Uber's expansion initiatives were, quote, led by over 100 leaders in dozens of countries around the world, and at all times under the direct oversight and with the full approval of Uber's robust legal policy and compliance groups. The spokesperson said Kalanick, quote, never suggested that Uber should take advantage of violence at the expense of driver safety, and any suggestion he was involved in such activity is completely false. In a statement, Uber admitted to mistakes and missteps, but said it had been transformed under the leadership of its current executive, Dara Khosrowshahi. Uber said it had stopped using the kill switch in 2017 when Khosrowshahi replaced Kalanick and overhauled its corporate structure. A spokesperson for Kalanick said the kill switch was, quote, not designed or implemented to obstruct justice. She said it was used to protect intellectual property and the privacy of customers. More to come in the days ahead. These kinds of projects take a lot of time, resources and courage to expose things that powerful people and companies don't want the world to know. The Guardian is totally independent of shareholders or billionaire owners, so we can pursue these stories wherever they take us. If you want to help us do more projects like the Uber Files in the future, invest in The Guardian's investigative journalism today at theguardian.com forward slash contribute. That's theguardian.com forward slash contribute. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Sammy Kent and Rose DeLarabiti. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Nicole Jackson. Back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.